everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. I want to update you regarding several exciting events at Matan before moving to the Parsha. Save the date. Matan will mark 35 years of women's learning with the Yishai Rubo concert at the Jerusalem Theater on October 8th, the 13th of Tishrei, right before Sukkot. If you will be here in Israel, we would love to see you there. Registration for the coming academic year is well underway. Please check out the Matan website for all relevant information. Matan will be running its annual ELO program from September 11th through 22nd or the 15th to the 26th of ELO. The ELO program is a great opportunity to get a taste of Matan and recharge for the coming year. There are parallel Hebrew and English programs. Check out Matan's website and all social media platforms for more information. Lastly, if you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Vayelech already begins the big wind-down in the Book of Devarim. Moshe is preparing for his dramatic separation from the Jewish people. In a moving ceremony in front of the people, he hands over the baton to Yoshua and encourages him to be strong and remember that God will be with them and lead them to success in their upcoming military battles. The second section of this incredibly short parsha has Moshe writing down what is called HaTorah Hazot, this Torah, which some believe is the Book of Durim and others the entire Torah up until this point. Moshe commands that this Torah be read each year in the HaKel ceremony, which takes place on the holiday of Sukkot right after the Shemitah year, what would be this coming Sukkot. For a society without available books in each home or the literacy to access them, this ceremony was crucial. It kept the people in touch with the words and commandments of the Torah, which they otherwise would not have been familiar with. While any modern revival of this commandment is moving as a national gathering, we should not underestimate the significance of the ceremony's content in a more ancient world. The third section of the Parsha is an introduction to the poem of Ha'azinu, Hashira Hazot. It is a poem that is supposed to strengthen the people's resolve to stay close to God despite the allures in the land of Canaan. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Jennifer Raskis to speak about the concept of public narrative and its relationship with Parshad Vayelech and Moshe's goodbye to the people. Jennifer is the Washington, D.C. Director at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. She is a founder of and inaugural scholar in the International Halacha Scholars Program of the Susie Bradfield Women's Institute of Halachic Leadership of Oratora Stone. She is also a trained facilitator for Resetting the Table, an organization that builds meaningful dialogue and deliberation across political divides. Jen, it's a pleasure to have you here. It is such a pleasure to speak with you. We had a chance to see each other physically at the Herzog Yun, and now we have the pleasure of seeing each other on the screen to have this conversation that's inspired by someone who taught you, and I think really brings a totally unique, meaningful perspective on Moshe's final days and final stage of his life. So take us into that wherever it feels right for you. Perfect. Um, so first of all, I had the pleasure of not only seeing you, but actually learning from you um, at the Yun, which was such a wonderful and inspirational, beautiful experience. So thank you so much for that. Um, and what we're, what I want to talk to you about today is another um, professor, another person that I learned from in a completely different context, um, and talk about some of his theories of leadership and how he inspires leaders across the world to lead movements and to gain followers to make the world better, how we can maybe take some of his theory and see how Moshe may have been using some of those exact 
type of motivational strategies to inspire the Jewish people as he came to the end of his life. In the idea that you, please God, will be sharing with us today, it also really reminds me how meaningful academic study can be because it can give us language. Meaning, was Moshe familiar with the theories that we're going to speak about now? No, he wasn't familiar with them. It's certainly not in the language that it's expressed, but that's the beauty I, I really feel. One of the big beauties of academia is that it can provide us with a language that can then shed light on something that obviously preceded it by, by thousands of years. So, so taking a step back when thinking about Vayelech and where, where we are, where are the people, where is Moshe? So Moshe really, really knows that the transition is coming. He's about to end his life. He needs to pass that over to Yoshua. We just had Parshat Nitzavim, where Moshe was very clear with the people about what he believes is the most important message or some of the most important messages for them to take into perpetuity. And that's really to love God, to have a relationship with God and keep the primacy of Torah alive. And now he needs to figure out in my last few times coming to the people, how can I motivate them to make the Torah and to make their relationship with God primary and to not only do it for themselves, but to keep it as part of the tradition that they are going to be passing on to their children. So with that um, as background, I'd love to tell you a little bit about um, public narrative, as you said, which is something I learned from Professor Marshall Gans. Um, he's the Rita E. Hauser Senior Lecturer in Leadership, Organizing and Civil Society at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, um, where I had the privilege to study under him and, and take his courses. And again, he teaches leadership and, and he teaches public policy leaders or public leaders how to motivate followers to aspire to the vision that they see needs to be brought into the world right now. And what I loved immediately about his teaching is that he himself, a son of a rabbi, he himself believes that one of the first times that the theories that he has, the messages that he's about to share is articulated, actually comes from Pirkei Avot, and specifically from Hillel. So in Pirkei Avot, Parak Aleph, chapter 1, uh, Mishnah 14, we have the famous lines, Im nili mili, if I am not for myself, who am I? If I am only for myself, what am I? And if not, now when? And he points to that as such an important articulation of when you are thinking of action, when you are thinking of what to do with your life, it's very important to first, if I'm not for myself, concentrate on yourself, focus on the self, then, but if I'm only for myself, what am I? Concentrate on others, concentrate on who are your people, who are the people that share these values with you, and then, if not now, when? Then focus on urgency. So he develops a theory called public narrative, which he basically tells leaders, first tell the story of self, what calls you to action? Then tell the story of us. What calls all of us to action? What is our collective identity? What matters to you and us that's the same? Why are we all here together? And if not now, when? What is it that we, as a group with a collective identity, need to be doing right now because there's something wrong and we as the collective must fix it. 
So public narrative, which I learned from Professor Gans, is something that I actually teach pretty often um, to, to, to leaders within the Jewish community. And one of the reasons why I like doing it is because Professor Marshall Gans points out just how important narrative is, how important stories are to how we live our life and why we make the decisions we do. He points out that first of all, we can be going through our routines and our habits, but inevitably in life, the unexpected happens. Life is full of uncertainty. And we as individuals know that uncertainty is such a profound part of life. And we are constantly searching for ideas on how we should overcome that uncertainty. And that's what a story is about. A story is, if I tell you I ate breakfast this morning and then I went to school, that's not a story, right? But if mm -hmm. I tell you I ate breakfast this morning and then I tried to turn my car on and it wouldn't start, now we have something unexpected that happens. And now, now we have interest in both of us trying to figure out, well, what did you do? How did you overcome that uncertainty? Also, I know from previous uh, research that I've done uh, on stories, there's one particular study that I think is fascinating. It's a study on storytelling that was in 2010 by, um, by scientists Greg Stephens, Lauren J. Silbert, and Uri Hasson. And they pointed out that if you're telling a good story, then the brain, if you put your brain through an fMRI machine and you were able to see the different ways that it was lighting up, the brain of the person who's telling the story and the brain of the person who's listening to the story are actually pretty much in sync. Hmm. The person who's yeah. telling the story is a little bit further ahead, right? Because they're telling the story and the person hearing the story is just a teeny bit behind, but literally the different parts of your brain that are lighting up. And when you're telling a story, if you talk about eating, your sensory cortex is going to light up. If you talk about moving, your motor cortex is going to light up. Literally, when you're telling a story, so many parts of the brain of the person listening are in sync. And then something really cool happens, which is at some point, the person who's hearing the story's brain actually starts lighting up in Before. a way that the person who's telling exactly the person who's telling the story's brain will, will light up. Then that one comes a little bit later. And that's because when we're really engaged in a story, we start predicting what's going to mm -hmm. happen so that actually we're not only able to capture the attention so much of the person listening, but the person listening is actually going to be even one step ahead of us. Um, yeah, I mean, that's like a biological way of speaking about when you're, let's say, giving a sheer or telling a story and you say the audience was with me, right? They, you could feel it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the audience will say that I was right there in the moment. And sometimes as a facilitator or a teacher, you get up there and you know, like, you know, you felt that they were with you in that moment. So that's a really interesting way that we can sort of biologically prove that. Um, amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going back to Moshe. So Moshe needs to capture everyone's attention, right? He didn't have the fMRI machine, but he was hoping that, that people were going to be paying attention and with him every second of the way. And the question is, how should he do it? So as mm -hmm. you mentioned, Vayel has such a short Parsha. It's only 30 psukim. I think it's the shortest Parsha that we have. Yeah. Um, and also, Moshe did not know public narrative. Um, but I think if we analyze the different things that he does in Parshat Vayelech and a little bit into Azino, we can see that he's using some of the same motivational tools that we now know are tools that leaders across the world are trained to use in order to inspire action. 
By the way, I'll just change the way that I expressed it before, which is that Moshe likely intuited these skills. It doesn't doesn't mean that he didn't know them, but he intuited them. And then obviously, thousands of years later, we now have language for it. So I'll, I'll just give that little tweak to the way I expressed it earlier. I also think that implicit in what you're saying is that after Moshe has given this very long speech of all these chapters, he's trying to do something different at the end, meaning this is a different section than, obviously, the, all the commandments that are spoken about in earlier parshiot. We've really reached another section, and that Moshe has a different goal with what he wants to do at the end. And that's implicit, because in this theory of public narrative, he's trying to arouse them to some sort of joint mission. And so, that is going to, obviously, be connected to a certain degree with what he said before, but it's going to have a different urgency and a slightly different goal, I think, than, than what's come up until this point. Absolutely. In some ways, I think you can think of it as up until now, he's been telling them what the Torah is, right? And specifically with the mitzvot, he's been elaborating certain mitzvot that are important for people to keep, etc. And now he's really taking a step back and looking at it in a meta way Mm -hmm. and saying, okay, now you understand the Torah. Now, how do we make this something that we are going to be keeping, you know, at the center of our lives for generations to come? You actually see a very clear pessimism on the part of Moshe in this week's Parsha. He's very aware of all the, I mentioned it in the introduction, but it's more than the allures, meaning he says straight out, you will fail. <laughs> you will fail to keep these mitzvot. You will fail to listen to God. And there's, it's, it's also, it's even harsh, I would say. It, it's a harsh uh, prediction uh, on the part of Moshe. And so with that very real picture in mind of what is to be, I've chosen Yoshua, but I know that you guys are not really going to succeed. What is it that I could do now at this point in time so that we can try and ensure that this is all continue uh, and, and passed on in the future? Absolutely. And that, that underscores the importance of this needs to be a message for all generations, not just for the generation that's going to make a mistake. And then the next generation is going to wake up and forget it. This really needs to be something that, that all generations will be able to look back on. So one of the tools that Moshe uses in this final speech is that he tells the people that they should relate to at least part of the Torah as a shira, as a poem. And a poem is not something that lives in the external world. It's something that lives inside of you. It's something that you bring your voice to and you bring it to life. You recite it. And even at the end of Hazino, at the end of what probably is the song, we hear that God says that this song should be set to your hearts, right? It's, it's something, and even Moshe says, it's something that should be in, in your path, in your mouth. So he's, he's saying that the, the Torah is not just something external. The Torah is part of you. It's part of your identity. It's part of what lives inside of you. He's basically saying the Torah is part of your story of self. So he's relating the Torah to each and every individual who is going mm-hmm. to carry a piece of the Torah in them. In a purposefully unique form, meaning purposely changing the form so that it could be something that is also recited, remembered, or again, going back to that intro point about literacy and lack of, of written word. So mm-hmm. that this is a form that could be imbibed and remembered in a much more personal way by the by the kahal, by the audience. Absolutely. Beautifully okay. said.
The second thing he does, or another thing he does, is that, as you mentioned in the intro, he he gives the mitzvah, he gives the commandment of hakel, that the people need to come together once every seven years during Sukkot, and they need to collectively listen to part of the Torah being proclaimed. And there's many parts of this that a lot of the Mepharshim have looked at and realized that this seems to be a reenactment of Harsinai, right? Even the word Vayahakel is a word that we see in connection to when we got the, the Ten Commandments at, at Harsinai. So what Moshe is doing is he's realizing that having a piece of the Torah as a shira, as part of the individual, is very important. And it's also super important that the Torah be something that we do together, that we as a national collective, that we do repeatedly every seven years, not just once at Harsinai, but really repeatedly we get together and we reenact the most foundational, formative experience that we had as a collective when we received God's Torah. And then finally, he does in many ways, he needs to tell the Jewish people, he needs to tell them why keeping the Torah, whether it's as a shira, as a poem, or whether it's as a national collective experiential moment in their national cycle. Yes. Why is it so important that they understand this right now? Why is it so important that, that this be something that they make primary right now? And then he does, he tells the story of now. He tells them exactly why. Mm. He tells them it's important because I don't have much time with you left. I, it's time for me to transfer the leadership onto Yoshua. And he does also, we just talked about a public formational event. He starts the transition to Yoshua. It says in the sight of all of Israel. He makes sure that everyone sees and experiences on their own, that they see that the transition, the change is happening right now. And because of what's happening right now, that brings everything that he said up until now and that he's going to say in his final speech, it brings it really into the unique moment of now with a sense of urgency. So we have the the I, which is the, the poem, essentially. We have the us, which is the Hakel, that national collective moment. And we have the now of this has to happen now because I won't be here. There also, there's something that I love about this scene with Yoshua, because we know that so often leaders aren't able to pass on the baton to someone after them. And when you, when, when the audience or when the followers are able to see the, the outgoing and the incoming leader together, there's an incredibly powerful message that's sent there, which is that, first of all, I'm humble enough to know that someone needs to replace me, and I need someone to take this to a different place. And we're lucky when leaders of institutions, for example, are able to do this, and it's not ugly or something political, or they didn't appoint anybody, and then they died, and then there was a hole there that needed to be filled and usually gets filled with much more conflict than, than could have been, that could have been avoided. And so this moment to me always brings home the uniqueness of Moshe, that he was able to, first of all, he asks God for Yoshu, which is a totally different a podcast conversation, but God actually doesn't approach him to bring Yoshua. Moshe asks for him, which is an interesting question whether or not initially God had wanted another leader after Moshe. But that being the case, I just this moment of I imagine you know Moshe and holding Yoshua's hand always to me emphasizes 
the leader that he was, that he was, that he had that foresight and that desire to show that they were working in tandem and that they were connected as opposed to Moshe was then and Yoshua is now. I think it shows a tremendous amount of humility about his own self and a tremendous amount of, of really concern he had to keep the people as the primary, right? It's one thing to, to say, I'm going to do the best I can as long as I'm here. It's another thing to say, this vision of the, the Israelites, of the Jewish people, of entering the land, this is bigger than I am. This is way bigger than I am. And time-wise, this is going to continue. And I think something else that's really interesting is that although we're reading about a transition of Moshe transmitting or transitioning to Yoshua, there's actually another transition that's happening while we're reading it, which is that we ourselves, we roll the Torah, we see where it's going, and we know that the Torah itself, we're almost at the end of it for this cycle. So I think also in some ways it feels like Moshe is talking directly to us because we too are transitioning. We're about to finish the the end of the Torah. And we may also have a lot of fear of what's next. What am I supposed to learn from this? There was a lot there. What's the key? And in some ways, I think Moshe helps us too, the readers, to be able to see, aha, the key is keeping Torah primary. The key is the relationship with God. And the key is continuity and perpetuity. I think another prism that we could use to look at this section is that Moshe also teaches us some really profound lessons about how to die well. Mm. Um, meaning not only what the leaders need to do when they know that their time is coming to a close, whether that's because they're dying or because they're retiring. But I think that there's some really deep ideas to be said here about last wills and testament, about gathering family, about gathering those you've influenced. Uh, I think that there's sort of like real treasure that's buried in here that we'll just leave sort of as that nugget. We won't get into it now, but... I think that these parshiot, not just Vayelech, also the parshiot that come after, they really also teach us a tremendous amount about how one, if they're gifted with time to part from this world, how how they might best do that. That's beautiful. And, and I think in some ways, like thinking about the Torah as a whole, if we can think about it that the themes of Breshit are all about birth, right? It's creation, it's birth. So we start out with the first man and what came even before that. And then we end on our most pivotal leader on his death. And I think there's something really beautiful that we can we can also just from that. You're saying it's it's also a life cycle and it's also a Torah cycle and that there's a parallel there between how we enter and exit the Torah cycle each year. Yeah, there might be. I never thought about it, but just listening to what you were saying. I think it's also really powerful, by the way, that it obviously coincides with Rosh Hashanah. This is in the world today when it was a three-year cycle, obviously things about differently, but in the cycle that we have now for a long time, where it's every year, we sort of get this, you know, how to exit the big stage uh, as we exit the big stage of the year. And I think that there, that there might be some moving parallels and ideas here. Tov, well, any listeners who have a thoughts, please share them with us. You know, I think we can even see, you know, we know as we're in the Yamim Noreim and, and as we're just also trying to mobilize ourselves, right? Moshe had to mobilize a whole Jewish people, but we, we have to mobilize ourselves. Um, we have to mobilize ourselves to do tshuva and we have to mobilize ourselves also to be thinking about what's important in life and, and the stories that we want to tell, live, dream, etc. And within the liturgy of the Yamim Noreim, we have a key that we're given about how it is that we are supposed to succeed in the tshuva process. And it's within the Tanah Tokef, 
Then the Tanatoka of prayer says that tshuva, repentance, tefillah, prayer, and tzedakah, charity, that it is through those things that we are mavirin at Rohagzera, that we are able to shift the, the evil decree. And taking the, the formula of public narrative, I think we can also see a way that we can view that process for ourselves. So how would that be? Well, tshuva, tshuva is the story of self. It's all about self-reflection, self-examination, remorse for the ways that we went wrong, and undertaking to personally and individually do better. Then you have tefillah. Tefillah is something that we are told to do bitsibor when we can, that we are told to do with, with the collective. And even in our most private part of tefillah in the Shemona Esrei, we are constantly saying, not rifaini, heal me, but rifainu, heal us. We are constantly asking for the benefit of the collective and praying for the benefit of the collective. Tefillah urges us to utilize our relationship with God in order to uplift all those around us. And tzedakah is about now. Tzedakah, it's, it's so easy in life to be like, oh, I'll just give tomorrow or someone else can do it. Or, you know, I really don't have enough resources in this minute. Maybe I'll just build more resources now and I'll give later. And tzedakah is no. Tzedakah is taking the resources that you have right now and you as a person right now in this moment using your resources to build for a better tomorrow. So in some ways, actually, Shuva, Tvil, and Staka help us in a pivotal moment of needing to think about what's most important and how do we do Shuva and how do we gain, you know, acceptance in God's eye. In some ways, it's focusing on the self, focusing on us, the collective, and focusing on the urgency of now. You know, what I love about this idea is that Specifically around Elul, we tend to get very self-focused. There's a lot of pressure. <laughs> People often feel like they're failing. And I think that by having the combined perspective of myself, of the collective, and also what, what we do we need to do now, meaning I can think about the broad year, okay? But that itself is overwhelming. So I, if I think about what needs to happen now or how I can make things better in the very close proximity of the coming period of time, I think that that also makes it much more feasible than other ways to go about it. Yeah, I think that a lot of this is is centering us. If we think about like the vision of us praying on Yamim Noraim, it's we're not praying usually in a room by ourselves, right? We're praying in a room with a collective and we're praying in a very specific moment in the year. So it's sort of also just situating ourselves in time and in place. And then doing those two things help us situate ourselves in terms of our values and our goals. I think also when we join with the collective, first of all, makes that time of year much less scary. Uh, when we think, if we feel that we're on our own, the the burden is tremendous and and it can turn into fear much more quickly. And one of the beauties of, of prayer in general in a minyan and a quorum, and specifically at this time of year, and there's a lot of halachot that reflect this idea as well, that really one should, especially on the Amin Noraim Davin with the Minyan, so that Yer Shmonas, right, for example, doesn't stand on its own. I think that there's tremendous, not just we will gain from the collective, but also tremendous comfort that's to be had by joining the collective. And in this case, thinking about what the collective really needs at this, at this time of year. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the wonderful and inspiring conversations and teaching you're always bringing.
My pleasure. I will link the article by uh, Professor Gans in the show notes. So anybody who wants to read it uh, will be able to do so. And looking forward to more wonderful conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.